Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. Happy birthday, Fiona. And I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-host for the evening, Anastasia. Lavendar has the night off, but she'll be back next time. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to our last show on September 6th, be sure you do. You'll hear some exciting information that can benefit Starseed missions greatly. Well, with the ongoing global Starseed activation, we have had many new followers who haven't heard our featured episode of Lavendar's Crack Between the Worlds, the story of her mind-blowing experience at Giant Rock in California with George Van Tassel, a UFO contactee, and the creator of the Integratron. During one visit with him, she was asked to wait in the room built under Giant Rock where she soon came face-to-face with an ET who just appeared to give her the assignments of her life. This story will keep you on the edge of your seat, so do not listen to this while you're driving. Starseeds have had physical reactions to this story, including dizziness and sleepiness, so be safe. If you do have unusual sensations, just know that your body is making adjustments. The events that took place at that time are so connected to the countless starseeds whom Lavendar's work has empowered. So if you've had a reading from us, Lavendar's journey to discover the starseed markings started with this story. On our main site, which is starseedhotline.com, you'll find our Vault of Knowledge where there is much of the light information that Lavendar has released, as well as rich resources for starseeds to remember and learn. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest and hope to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. So we're going to get right to it this evening. And, okay, I'm glad you're here, Anastasia. Let me get your mic open. Hang on a second. Hello. Yes. And now it's Anastasia's Starseed News. There we go. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I made it. I'll tell you what, sometimes computers can be a hassle, but here I am. Well, I wondered about that. Because, yeah, I switched screens there for a moment and didn't see you at first. So uh, I was, I was like, no, just hope you there when I get back. I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> okay. uh, thank well. you for holding it together. Well, we've got some fun news tonight. Some of it's... <laughs> Uh, we do the best we can. Good news is pretty hard to come by these days, but there are wonderful pockets. And I've got some favorite stories of mine to share with you tonight. Now, I'm going to start tonight with a little bit of space news. Um, Saturn's rings, let's talk about that for a second. They tell us that Saturn's rings come from something other than what they thought they, it came from before. So the rings of Saturn are kind of a dead giveaway that the planet is spinning at a tilt because you can see it. Uh, the rings go a little bit sideways, and the belted giant rotates at a 26.7-degree angle relative to the plane in which it orbits the sun. And astronomers have long suspected that this tilt comes from gravitational interactions. This is the news here where they had findings that it happened because of Neptune. 
Now, a new modeling uh, a study by astronomers at MIT has shown, though, that while the two planets were one time in sync, Saturn has since escaped Neptune's pull. What was responsible for this planetary realignment? How did Saturn get out of Neptune's gravity? They tell us that the rings and tilt of Saturn could be the product of an ancient missing moon and that it had a grazing encounter with Saturn that may have smashed the moon into bits to form Saturn's rings. In this study, Saturn, which happens to host right now, as we know, 83 moons, they say at least it harbored one more. And that extra satellite scientists have named Chrysalis. They tell us that Chrysalis orbited Saturn for several billion years, pulling on the planet in a way that kept its tilt in resonance with Neptune. They tell us that about 160 million years ago, Chrysalis got unstable. It came too close to Neptune and uh, to Saturn, and at a close encounter, uh, shattered the moon. It, they collided. What's more, a fraction of its fragments, they say, are suspended in orbit that are now f- forming the signature rings. So, a crash with its own moon has given Saturn its rings. That's what they're telling us today, anyway. And I can't even think in terms like that. Billions of years in the absolute utter silence of space and all of these very long-moving arcs of the universe are awesome to contemplate. And science is really having a lot of fun now. I mean, they're just discovering all kinds of things. It's a great time to be alive. And here's one of my favorite stories. Now, look, I am so sorry I don't have a show-and-tell here. I can't show you photographs. And so I'm going to invite you to look this up on the Internet. But there is a safari park worker, a man who is very, very, very best friends with a lion. And he's cuddled this lion and kissed this lion and pampered this lion. And it follows him around like a puppy for a long, long time. So here's the story. I want to introduce you to this guy. He's a South African animal expert who's been friends, very best friends, with a 550-pound lion that he named George. And they've been pals for over 10 years. I'm looking at a photo of this right now. It just, it's like my childhood's dream, okay, to cuddle and kiss a real lion. What child <laughs> hasn't wanted to, like, pet and ride and cuddle up to a lion, sleep with a lion? Well, somebody's actually developed that kind of relationship. Now, the man and the lion first met when George the Lion was born at the Lion Safari Park in South Africa, where this guy called Shandor works as the very head of animal husbandry. Well, since that time, Shander, the man, has groomed this big cat and played with him every single day. And this, these two can often be seen cuddling together in the most extraordinary ways. And this is where I want you all to look up the video. You won't believe it. Anyway, this 10-year-old lion developed from a tiny, tiny cub to the head of its own pride. But he always makes time for this man, Sandor. Uh, the animal lover, who's 27 years old, said, It was like watching a child grow up. It's exactly the same feeling. Now, George, to me, is similar in the sense that while he's social, he also likes to be alone a lot. It's amazing to see that when I arrive, he'll leave the rest of the pride, all of the other lions, and walk over to cuddle me. We've learned from this young man that lions have good days and bad days, just like people do. He said, if I go in there and he doesn't come running up, then I know it's just not going to happen. 
But on his good days, on his social days, George the lion loves to be pampered. So Shander massages the lion, brushes his beautiful hair, and shares playtime. And when the cat is in a good mood, it's usually once a day. The great big lion loves this fly repellent that this guy made just for him. He's crazy about it. To watch the video, it makes me think of my kittens with uh, catnip. He rolls around just like a little kitten that's been given catnip, and it puts him in a good mood. He'll roll on his back, exposing his tummy, which no animal ever does unless there's total trust, and he loves to be massaged. He loves his paws massaged. He takes smooches on the nose. He nuzzles this guy. It's unbelievable. Well, the George the Lion is so partial to this human that he once saved this guy from an attack by his own cubs. There was an occasion when Shandor was with uh, George's male cub, which also was, of course, a part of the great cat's pride, which is what you call a pack of cats, a pride. He says, lions have two growls. On that day, the cub had a growl that was really not happy, and he just walked up to me and growled like that, and out of the blue, he came running at me to attack. Well, from the left-hand side came George's lioness, who grabbed the cub from the right side And George came running to knock me out of the way before he grabbed his offspring. This gave George's human caretaker an opportunity to get the heck out of there. Even with close close calls like this, Sanders says, I can think of times in my life when I was really struggling with all kinds of things, just really bummed out. Different things have happened, and these animals have really helped me. I mean, the, the mother lion and the father lion got their little kid in line so this guy could not be chewed on or (laughs) scratched or bitten or whatever. Amazing. Well, recently, this guy and George have become TikTok sensations, and their videos get hundreds of thousands of views. So you can find videos online, and I do encourage you to watch. It's an unbelievable demonstration of affection between a lion and a human. And like I said, it's my childhood fantasy come to life. Just awesome you ever wonder what you know you think your cat's cute Uh, they are they're adorable when they're purring and they're affectionate and you know how cats are Mm -hmm. this line is just you got it you got to see it so look this up the guy's name is sandor south african animal expert at a safari park in africa it's on tiktok try to find it you won't believe it especially if you like cats and even if you don't it's awesome well you know lots of discussion has been had in communities, science communities, and, I don't know, think tanks, about what's going to feed the world going forward, particularly with climate change. But there's some news on that front, because, you know, there's an awful lot of seaweed in the ocean. Seaweed, in the ocean. Uh, seaweed, really, seaweed is really quite healthy and very good for us, and a lot of cultures consume quite a bit of it. Well, in a recent landmark study, these enormous forests of ocean kelp were found between 4 and 11 times more productive than the most productive food crops that we can grow today, like wheat, corn, and rice. Now, the nutrient-rich waters of the ocean create the biggest forests of golden, uh, and I think there's red and bamboo kelp that can grow 100 feet tall. 100 feet tall. And these ecosystems outgrow even the mighty Amazon rainforest. This is like... An amazing thing. This great African sea forest is made up of bamboo kelp, 
and contains vast biodiversity, all kinds of undersea animals, and it covers over 400 miles. But the Great Southern Reef in Australia is far more massive, and it stretches 5,000 miles across the continent's coastline. Well, they tell us that, that this mass natural production of a vital food source is going to aid in world food security. And nowhere is this even more demonstrated than in Indonesia. They have an aquaculture in their seaweed forests that creates products as varied as bioplastics and even ice cream. And what most people don't know is that the undersea forests play a critical role in the controlling of carbon dioxide because they absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The rate at which these forests, these undersea forests, absorb CO2 has been measured at 30 times faster than trees on land. So now these studies and all of these breakthroughs that are coming in, in ocean science uh, are, are eye-opening. There's movements about afoot to uh, further strengthen ocean health, ocean uh, well-being, clean, not only cleaning up the plastic and the junk, but really doing the things that are going to nurture uh, sea life and including uh, the vegetation in the sea, which has immense importance in our planetary climate. Isn't that something... You know, wow. the average person thinks, oh, it's just water, you know, and there's just stuff in there. It's Oceans are really essential to our survival in more ways than one. Yeah, well, I, I heard, I heard, I didn't have to interrupt. I just heard uh, just the other night a program that the oceans are 80% unexplored. There's no telling what's waiting. Isn't that the truth? That just kind of gives me goosebumps. I mean, that's yeah. kind of a new frontier like outer space. Yeah, who uh -huh. knows what's down there? It's awesome. Sorry for interrupting. Probably plenty of lost civilizations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to go back to childhood again because I'm just a big kid, let's face it. But speaking of thinking about childhood, uh, there used to be a cartoon called The Jetsons. I bet a lot of you remember The Jetsons. Uh, the Space Age family, you know, and it was a lot of fun way back when. And whoops, hold on, guys. I lost my, I lost my article. Where did it go? <laughs> Here it is. Uh, anyway, uh, characteristics of The Jetsons were these... Uh, planes flying, these little uh, spaceships flying around in space. And everybody got in their spaceship and they went places. And uh, it used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, that was the latest uh, in the futuristic thought, was that someday there'd be flying cars. Well, you know, we're closer to that than you might think because United Airlines has just now pre-ordered 200 flying taxis with vertical takeoff for four passengers. Now, just think about this for a minute. Uh, United Airlines is working to revolutionize commuting in cities all across the world. And they've announced a $15 million investment, which isn't very much. But they, have per but they made a purchase agreement for 200 four-seater electric flying taxis. These taxis have been in development for quite a while and are known as electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And United Airlines is expected to be uh, their first deliveries to come in just a, uh, 2026, just four years. They tell us with the skies above major cities set to become the next lanes of traffic. I don't know how I feel about that. But anyway, that's what they're going to do. They say that aviation authorities will need ideas, lots of ideas, about how to manage the transportation environment in a world where 500 to 1,000 flying taxes will work in every city across the country, across the world, making lots of trips every day. So I don't know. Going to have 1,000 flying taxis in our airspace over certain cities at wow i don't know i think lots <laughs> of training getting so 
lots of training. What'd you say? Lots of training. Yeah, lots yeah. of training. Taxi drivers are <laughs> notorious for being reckless. No kidding. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, it just makes me want to run to the top of Everest. That's all. Too much congestion. Yeah. I just want to go find a cave somewhere to be in. <laughs> well, okay, onward and upward. Here's a story that I thought was interesting because I think it shows some progress um, for lots of reasons. Um, the finalist in the Miss England Beauty Contest Beauty Competition is the first ever beauty queen to compete in a pageant without without what? No, not without clothes. Without wearing <laughs> makeup. <laughs> this is a 20-year-old college student from London. She will compete against 40 other finalists to be crowned Miss England in October. They tell us that Melissa is the first contestant ever to make it to the final totally makeup-free, and isn't she gorgeous? She said in an interview, It means a lot to me as I feel many girls of different ages wear makeup because they feel pressured to do so. If one is happy in their own skin, we should not be made to cover up our face with makeup. Our flaws make us who we are, and that's what makes each person unique. According to organizers, she plans to go barefaced again at the national final in October. She said, with mental health being such a big topic, I want to make all girls feel good. I just want to remove all the beauty standards. I feel like all girls are beautiful in their own way, and I've done this for all girls. Isn't that something she's sending out a very important message to young women? And that's awesome, really, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. We are pretty obsessed with makeup and such, and sometimes I, once in a while I turn on the television, the boob tube, as we used to call it, and I look at the very long eyelashes and thick makeup, and uh, people, it seems to be people are wearing more makeup than they used to, and whatever, but it's a nice thought. I thought to myself, this probably is a starseed young woman who is coming from a very special space, of being real and no accepting doubt. others for the way they look. And that's wonderful. Here's a cute story. It's from Los Angeles. A beloved math teacher in Los Angeles entered what he believed was a faculty appreciation ceremony. But instead, he walked out with the keys to a brand new car. The teacher is 31 years old. He lives in Santa Clarita Valley, and he teaches at a boys' high school. Every morning, he gets up at 4.30 and commutes four hours each day by scooter and then sometimes by bus to get to and from the school because he doesn't have a car. He gets home about 9.30 at night, long after his three young children have gone to bed. One student said he still makes sure to devote all of this time to his students. He'll skip his lunch break to help a student and stay after school. He also helps us and those students who are not in his classes. He's really, really, really devoted to our futures. And the students were devoted to getting him a car. So during a months-long fundraising campaign, his students, knowing of his transportation difficulties, raised more than $30,000 to buy him a 2019 Mazda. They also bought him a year's worth of gasoline and paid for his car insurance. The teacher said, I feel surprised, I feel special, so thank you to my students. They are like my kids. And now that I have a car, I get to drop off kids every morning, my kids, take my kids to school. And then coming here with time to spare, I can use it on my lesson plans. Then on my way back, traffic is bad, but I'll be able to make it home for dinner. 
so. One of the senior students told the Los Angeles Times, no matter what happens with him, he's going to find some way to pay it forward. We've been taught certain values like empathy and to treat your fellow person as you'd want to be treated. Our teacher is the embodiment of that. With this car, with this new opportunity, he's only going to find more and more ways to help other people around him. Gosh. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful story about caring. All right. right. If you hadn't heard enough about the queen already, some of you love it, need it up, and some of you are going, oh, no more. I had to share this with you, partly because it's about animals. You know, we heard about the queen's corgis. Did you know the, the queen had bees? I didn't. So here's a story about the royal beekeeper. Now, the royal beekeeper has had to help look after the bees for well over 10 years. And he had to take part in a peculiar ancient tradition at the time of the queen's death. It's a pretty strange ritual. But what did he have to do? He had to tell the bees that the queen died. He let him know. He's 79 years old. His name is John. He's the official palace beekeeper. And he never knew until recently that informing the bees of the queen's death was a part of his professional role. So he traveled to Buckingham Palace and Clarence House to carry out this very unique ritual. He placed black ribbons tied to bows on the hives before telling the bees that their mistress had died and that a new master would be in charge from now on. Afterwards, he urged the bees to be good to their new boss, King Charles. He said, I'm at the hives now, and it's traditional when someone dies that you go to the hives and say a little prayer and put a black ribbon on the hive. I drape the hives with a black ribbon with a bow. The person who has died is the master or mistress of the hives, someone important in the family who dies, and you don't get any more important than the queen, do you? Hmm. So you knock on each hive and say, the mistress is dead, but don't you go. Your master will be a good master to you. He said, I've done the hives at Clarence House, and now I'm in Buckingham Palace doing their hives. There are two, house, two hives in Clarence House and five, house, uh, five hives in Buckingham Palace. Each hive contains about 20,000 bees, and in the summer there are well over one million bees. And they belong to the king or the queen. What a story, huh? So yeah. Some appreciation, interestingly, metaphysically, of the consciousness of the bees. Right. One, yeah, it gives one cause for thought. I love bees. You all know that. And finally, our last story is about dogs who cry tears of joy when they're happy. Now, they tell us, of course, and we don't need to be told this, that in us, humans, our tear volume increases when we're emotional. But Japanese scientists wanted to see if the thing, same thing happens with dogs. So a professor, a professor at the Laboratory of Human-Animal Interaction at a university in Japan decided to investigate dog tears after he noticed his poodle's eyes got teary when she nursed her puppies. The authors wrote in their study, to our knowledge, no previous studies have investigated the relationship between emotional arousal and tear volume in animals. The researchers found that dogs' tear volume increased significantly during a reunion with their owner, but not with a non-owner. We found that dogs shed tears associated with positive emotions, said the guy who co-authored the study. 
He went on to say, we have also made the discovery of oxytocin as a possible mechanism underlying that. And you all probably know that that in humans is called the love or the maternal hormone. With the help of 20 dogs, researchers compared the amount of tears before and after reunions with their owners and people with whom the animals were lovingly familiar. Only the reunion with the owner increased the amount of tears. In the first experiment, the dog's tears volumes were measured in their normal home environment with the owner present, and within the first five minutes of a reunion with the owner following seven hours of separation. A mixed model analysis revealed that tear volume significantly increased during these reunions. Hmm. Then they compared tear volumes before and after reunions with owners and familiar non-owners. Following separation from the owner in a dog's daycare center, dogs secreted larger tear volumes during reunions with their owners than with non-owners, and tear volume during reunion with the owner was significantly greater than at any other time. To understand whether oxytocin played a role in producing the tears, they used a solution to uh, add to the dog's eyes. They said that the amount of tears significantly increased after oxytocin was applied compared with a different solution. And they say this is the first report on positive emotion stimulating a tear secretion in a non-human animal. They went on to say, unlike any other animal, dogs have evolved or been domesticated through communication with humans and have gained high-level communication abilities with humans using eye contact. And there is a natural yeah. closeness. Isn't that something? Yeah. You know, the more you learn about the world, the more respect you have for it. The more you just have to love these animals and plants and consciousness. Just the amazing goodness. We're swimming in it. Ah, oh, this is a beautiful place, and life is beautiful, and things are crazy out there right now. I mean, everybody's kind of going nuts, but you know what? You just have to put your focus elsewhere. The, the pangs of change are painful, but you know there are constants in this world, and all around us we see evidence of this continual beauty and harmony and balance and wonder. So from my heart to each one of you, hold this sacred space. Uh, remember who you are. Hold fast and true to all that's good. And I give you love for the next two weeks. I hope you all have a great one. Thank you so much, Ariel. We'll be with you next time. I okay. so appreciate being with Thanks. all of you. Thanks, Anastasia. Talk to you in two weeks. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to uh, present Lavendar's feature story, Crack Between the Worlds. Crack Between the Worlds, read by Lavendar. This is a document that has been in the making for a very long time. Most of this information has been kept in a bank vault for over 30 years. I've decided to release this story at this time because now is the time. On March 4, 2000, I discovered on the Sightings.com webpage a story about an event that shook my soul to its foundation. Giant Rock, a huge boulder sitting in the area of Landers, California, had suddenly split open, exposing a gleaming white granite interior. Giant Rock had long been a sacred site 
for UFO researchers along with Native American lore. The description of the splitting of the rock is presented in an article by James Twyman, author of Emissary of Light and Secret of the Beloved Disciple. His website, www.jamestwyman.com, and the news article can be found from the High Desert Star newspaper dated Wednesday, February 23, 2000. So why did the news of the splitting of giant rock have such an effect on me? Because I've been holding a series of stories for several years concerning light information from ETs that are influencing our planet. Somehow I have been given the insight to journal some events that started to take place at Giant Rock starting back in 1976. These events were witnessed by several people. Some are living while others have crossed over. As I looked at the before and after pictures of Giant Rock, well, the before picture I knew so well, the, the after picture so startling, it was a shock to my system. I knew that it was a signal to me. Seeing the cracked rock created in my being a release of light information that I'd been holding for over 25 years. It seemed that every file in my brain's computer wanted to download, and I kept saying, oh, not now. It isn't time. I just can't do this now. I instantly knew that I had to put up my visible hands to my head as though I could stop this. I kept chanting, no, 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 as though I, I had any power over memories of this magnitude. It was at that moment that I felt an outside presence enter the room, and a calming came over me. This presence was not visible, and yet I was aware that it was there. The struggle with the filing system in my head seemed to be closed off. All at once, I knew that within 24 hours, I'd be released to write this story. Sacred time and space would be provided for me. I would simply sit down properly and release through the keyboard of my computer what I could remember or what I'd be allowed to remember. For days now, it had seemed that information about giant rock was about to surface. The day that the rock actually split was on a Monday, February 21st, 2000. My mother had a statement to me that certainly got my attention. At the time of this writing, my mother was 85 years old and was in a wheelchair. I had taken some of her artwork out and noticed that she had about 18 canvases that were unfinished and not signed. I asked her if she'd signed the pictures as I felt that her signature should be on them. She replied that she would not sign a picture until it was finished. I promised her that if I would take art lessons and learn some of her techniques that perhaps I could finish some of her paintings. She agreed and proceeded to tell me about each picture and what needed to be done to finish it. When I came to a painting that was of the sand dunes and mysterious blue and pink sky, I blurted out, Oh, this can be a picture of me at Giant Rock with George Van Tassel. My mother squinted her eyes with that little leprechaun look and said, Yes, and you haven't finished doing what you said you were going to do. And I said, Well, I think I've done about 25%. And she said, when are you going to do the rest of the story? And I said, I don't know. 
Now the thing that amazed me about her statement was that I couldn't remember telling her anything about my promise to George Van Tassel. I looked at the painting of the sand dunes and I could see, just as though it were yesterday, George walking toward the dunes and me walking back to the house where he lived. I also remembered that it was the last time that we had a three-hour one-to-one talk. In fact, I can now say with certainty that it was the last time I saw the true essence of George Van Tassel, period. The vision of me walking towards the house and not looking back seemed to freeze frame in my brain, and all at once I said, Mother, I know what I will paint, a man walking in one direction and a woman walking towards us. And she said, You never will. I mean, never learn to draw people and paint them. And with that, she just totally dismissed the painting. And a mother-daughter shutdown had occurred. And, well, you know the kind of electromagnetic psychic pulses that happen with certain genie bloodlines. And my mother was a genie. And she was certainly out of her bottle. I put the canvas down on the floor. And as I placed it, a series of pictures started flashing in my head. They were of the day that George took me for a walk and gave me information about ETs, walk-ins, mind control, ET government experiments, advanced technology, and spiritual insight. He clearly defined his ET source and from his perspective clues of their experiments. He turned to me and his, and his gentle voice said, one day you will need to release this light information to the world and you will know the right time because the signal will come when giant rock cracks. This will signify a communication line that represents the crack between the worlds. When this happens, then that will be your signal to release your light information, but with a lot of discernment. I asked him what he meant by when giant rock cracks and he went into great explanation about this information concerning the crack between the worlds and said that a demonstration and in unison with other dimensions would be lightning from the sky and the boulder would just simply crack open. He said it wouldn't happen for a long time and that I shouldn't concern myself with it now but that I was only to remember it when giant rock would crack. He said that I would write it down and pass it on to the next seven generations of people to come. And I asked him, why so long a time? And he said, the light information that I'm going to give to you will not be understood by many until then. But there will be those that will relate to this, and it is for them that you must pass this light information on. As we walked through the sand dunes, he related information about time travel, rejuvenation, ET technologies, walk-ins, and dimensional interconnectedness that occurred with certain codings and timings. He was able to transfer this light information in three hours, but it would take me 25 years to live it, decode it, and then translate it into story form. At that time, I was 33 years old and just starting on my spiritual journey into something I have referred to as Beyond Z. Through these years, I've come to know and understand some of the information that George gave me that day. Some I have already written about, while other aspects have been experienced but not yet journaled. 
Now that the rock has cracked open, it seems to signal to me that perhaps it is time to release the information about the stories of Giant Rock, George and Doris Van Tassel, and the visitations of the ETs. I could hear him saying this as clearly as though it were yesterday. And I said to myself, oh, not now. This isn't the time as I pushed the memories away. As part of this coordinated coincidence, a few days later, I received a phone call from Ariel telling me that she had been in contact with a man who had been to Giant Rock and had had many visits with Doris Van Tassel, George's second wife. I thought this seemed odd, especially after my recent experience with my mother and the sand dunes painting. As Ariel's talked, I started flashing again on a series of events that had taken place at Giant Rock. Once again, I said, not now, this isn't the time, as I continued to push even further back my memories, as they were coming through a place that I call the crack between the worlds. It was all that I could do just to listen to her explaining her relationship with her new friend. I was experiencing a series of flashing pictures and trying to listen to her at the same time. Pretty soon... I had to turn my screen off and just go blank. Sometimes this is the only way that I can hold my sanity together. I was on automatic pilot now and knew it. I also knew that something was approaching from the crack between the worlds, and the next time I didn't know if I could stop the visions with a simple blank screen. Through the years, I had learned the cadence and the deliverance system from the other wear and it seems as though they use it in a one, two, three punch system just before they knock me out with sacred data or before they release me to download information. I have never been able to discern whether it is incoming or outgoing or both being dyslexic. I guess it doesn't matter. Before I talk about my walk with George and the sand dunes, I should mention what happened to me on February 7, 1977. It all started with my romantic fling with a young man from Alaska who owned a helicopter company. I was truly smitten, and his physical sexual prowess kept my head spinning. On New Year's Eve, we were drinking Jack Daniels and really partying on the strip in Las Vegas. At the moment of midnight, he took me in his helicopter and we buzzed the strip and flew back to the airport. How we escaped the police and death is beyond me. He went home with me that night and moved into my apartment. The next day, I discovered that my favorite wristwatch with tiny diamonds was missing. My father had given me this wristwatch for my high school graduation, and it was very special to me. I retraced my steps and toured Ever Casino, but to no avail. I was simply devastated and felt a part of me was truly missing. We spent all of January in romantic bliss until one night, while dancing at the Mount Charleston Lodge, I became overwhelmed with a strong feeling that he was going to leave me for my best friend, Diana. It was so strong that I fled the dance floor and immediately went home. He tried to convince me that this would never happen, that he truly detested Diana. The next day, I tried to shake this vision, but I couldn't. He brought me flowers, we had a romantic dinner, then went downtown to see a movie. 
When we got home, I had such a foreboding that I sat down with a bottle of Jack Daniels and drank most of it. When I went into the bedroom, I heard a voice tell me to look at him sleeping and remember it, for it would be the last time he would spend the night there. I was drunk and thought I was hearing things, but I did remember it. The next morning, the voice started speaking inside my head again, saying things like, Watch him get dressed. Watch him eat breakfast. Now watch him walk out the door, for he will not be back. You will not ever see him again. I heard this, but didn't want to believe it. Sure enough, that night Diana called me to tell me he was over at her house. They stayed in bed for two weeks and got married. He never came back for his clothes, and I never saw him again. He vanished out of my life. I was out of my mind with grief. I canceled all my appointments and wouldn't leave my apartment until I received a telephone call from Doris Van Tassel from Giant Rock. She asked me if I would come immediately to see her. She said it was urgent. I had a girlfriend named Sally that had her own airplane, so she flew me down there. There was a landing strip at Giant Rock, as it was used to be it used to be an airport. When I got out of the plane, there were stores, thin, petite, white pixie hair with arms waiting to greet me. As she hugged me, I felt a sense of release from my heartbreak, almost like it fading from my mind. She grabbed Sally and said, Lavender needs to be alone so that she can sit inside the room below Giant Rock by herself. She needs some clarity. And with that, they drove off to the house, which was about a mile away. I was stunned, and yet I obeyed and went down the stairs to the room under the rock. This room had only one door in or out. I was there several minutes. When I started to climb the stairs to leave, I heard a voice behind me. When I turned around, there was a dark-haired man who had, well, he was bald on top. He looked like he'd put on a really bad hairpiece because, well, the hairpiece didn't look real, and there was this, this bald spot. It was just confusing. I noticed that his skin had no pores, and he looked bronze, like someone had just chiseled him out of a statue. His face was quite handsome. He reminded me of a cross between actors John Saxon and John Gavin. He was taller than me, and yet I felt the same size when in his presence. His eyes, what can I say that make any sense? They were gold and blue and green and black, then a rainbow of colors that aren't even in our spectrum. How do I describe a color with no reference point? Startled, I said, well, who are you and what do you want of me? And the next thing that happened was so freaky that it blanked my mind where I couldn't hear any words come from him. All I remember was that he motioned for me to open my hand, and when I did, I looked down, and in my hand there was my lost wristwatch. As he closed my hand and held it, he filled me with so much light that my five senses went into a blur. I couldn't see, hear, or smell. I was just totally overwhelmed. I couldn't even tell if I shut my eyes or not. The only thing I could remember after that was that he telepathically told me that I would not be able to convey to anyone about this transfer of light information until I had experienced it by living it. He told me, you are the demonstration and experiment of light information, and because of this, many adventures will be forthcoming, and you are to journal them, 
hold them in sacred space until such a time as light information demonstrations will be embraced by those of like mind. If you try to tell anyone of this before the time, they will be erased of this knowledge and not be able to keep it nor ever tell anyone about it. You will be alone with this and there will be those of us that will come throughout your life to present different levels of light information that opens doors of other realities, dimensions, and direct contact with those of us of extraterrestrial heritage, not of Earth. You will be loaned out to different species for short durations in order to journal their evolutionary contributions to Earth. During this time, you will be closely monitored through your double pineal and by crystal implants that we will give you. Through this series of adventure, you will go beyond the limb. This will be a turning point. And then terms of endearment. You will remember these phrases as they will become codes that will be released some of your adventures. These were the names of movies of an actress that I would empower later. Then he placed his hands on my head and I saw pictures of different vistas of trees and limbs and the environmental structure. Around these trees were images of people who looked like me dark hair, blue eyes. I saw movie stars. First was Natalie Wood, then Elizabeth Taylor. In the distance were Joan Collins, Barbara Parkins, Susan St. James, Susan Plachette, Elizabeth Ashley, and then the authors Jacqueline Suzanne and Anne Wren. Then off to one side I saw male figures that were famous. Burt Reynolds, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and Dennis Weaver, all of whom I met and had interaction with, some more than others. I don't have any memory of seeing Shirley MacLaine. After all the time we spent together and the joint experiments that were conducted by ETs, one would think that she might have been predominant in the pictures, but she wasn't. The only reasonable explanation for this is that that ever made sense was that Natalie Wood held a certain kind of evolutionary code to be played out, but she was taken out before she could finish it. Shirley was next in line to continue a certain kind of spiritual awakening for humanity. In my chapter on Shirley, this is explained in detail. Then I saw Ronald Reagan, Anwar Sadat, Gorbachev, Jerry Brown, Donald Trump, and then a stream of faces I could not identify which some of them showed up in my life in the next 25 years. Then I seemed to be going back in time and I saw all the founding fathers of America and I knew them by name. Then the scene changed and I saw a map with the names Athens, Greece, Cairo, Egypt, Israel, Aruba, Yucatan, Hawaii, Sedona, Flagstaff, Santa Fe, Rio Doso, Washington, D.C., and two faces I didn't know at the time. I saw me on several occasions at the White House surrounded by people that I would come to know later. Congressional and Senate members and presidential hopefuls became a collage of characters parading through my life. It became obvious to me that ETs were intertwined in the political arena. And it became really obvious to me recently with Egypt. Then I saw a group of 
fast-moving slides on the globe. Then a map of 33 places around the globe. He took his finger and pointed to every one of them, and then he would press on my forehead after each touch of the map. He said that I was to refer to these as the 33 GM PowerPoints of Crystal Grid System Activation. It would be from here that evolutionary planning would take place and would be monitored throughout the ages, as it has been designed that way from the beginning of the planet's history. I witnessed the activation of crystal ley lines and grid points by crystalline ET computers that were buried under the ground. A lot of guardians were also at these sites, and the indigenous tribes at each location found a bloodline that was worthy of stewardship. This was usually passed down through seven generations and interlocking with other ET bloodline experiments that would sometimes be interchanged with 14 generation experiments. So much of this information is still surfacing from my memory banks and is released a little at a time depending on who needs to know it kind of thing. Pictures were flashing so fast that I could remember only a small percentage of the information. I was shown how astrology and astronomy work together in a galactic system based on the 12 time zone system with certain degrees indicating specific galactic codes used by different species. It was through these pictures that the discovery of star markings was introduced to my filing system but wouldn't surface for many years. Bloodlines were a big part of this information as I saw an entire genetic system that is tracked by ETs through blood plus planetary timing based on certain planetary equations. It would be from here that he said that I could excel in matters of galactic proportions because this would reveal how ET species help to evolve a planet both negatively and positively. After this series of movies then he imparted a brief statement that I didn't understand for many, many years to come. He silently imparted a phrase, You are and have always been the light information. Come now, come later, but you're coming with the adventures suited for a scribe. You must live this first. We will be on the standby every day of your counting. Remember, you belong to no man. You belong to us. You belong to no man. You belong to us. Then he embraced me, had me breathe with him, and seemed to walk straight through me, and then just vanished. I looked down at my wristwatch, and it was running backwards, and that is when I totally collapsed. When I woke up, I was resting on the stairs. I felt like I must be having a nervous breakdown. I thought, I have to give up drinking Jack Daniels. It's causing my mind to go crazy. Then I realized that Doris had called me down to Giant Rock just for this experience. How else could I explain the wristwatch in my hand, which had now started running forward, but was off by two hours? Over the years, I've tried to play this out in my mind and attempt to remember the rest of what he showed me. I, I have only been able to put bits and pieces of it together, however, as my life would take different turns. I would see his face and somehow knew that he had foreseen or maybe even directed each adventure. Doris came to get me and take me back to the house for body treatment and dinner. 
Then Sally and I flew back to Las Vegas in her twin cub airplane. I was changed somehow, for the ache in my heart was gone, and I could no longer remember his name, the one I was so devastated over earlier. This would be the first of many romantic erasures to come in my life and then be erased out of my life. Whenever I would venture off my sole mission with a man, then the man would be erased. I mean erased. I had no memory of what he looked or felt like, only a shadow memory that he'd been part of my life. It takes a certain kind of male energy to even be in my presence, let alone my everyday life. Not many can handle the galactic pressures that accompany my experiment on the planet. I used to explain this away because later in life I was struck three times by lightning and I attributed it to that, but after the giant rock experience I knew that ET technology was at work and somehow it kept my little feet on the path of my future galactic experiences. So here's the story about my walk with George Van Tassel at the sand dunes around Giant Rock. This particular event happened about a month before George passed away. George and his wife Doris had called me to come visit them on this particular weekend. They had invited a select group of people to come and view some important documents that had been put in their care. And these documents were called the Wadi Scrolls. These were scrolls that were found in the Qumran Caves close to where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. A man named Wadi had found them and had taken them to Stanford University where they had been scrutinized and authenticated for seven years. The Van Tassels felt that they wanted witnesses for the reading of this material and they asked me, Harvey Brevere, a healer, and a Jewish couple, uh, I can only remember his name, Reuben, I can't pull their names right now, okay, to bear witness to the reading of these scrolls. They had also expressed to us that they felt that our abilities to track and discern would help them in deciding the fate of these important documents. A man named Leo had recently had a stroke and had given these scrolls to George because he felt that he wouldn't live much longer. George in turn entrusted this information to the four of us. We took turns reading this material which had been carbon dated as being written during the time of Jesus the Christ. There were letters from Claudius, Pontius Pilate, and Nicodemus, both Marys and several other biblical characters. This translation from Essenes to English was written by several professors at Stanford University. We started reading the scrolls in the afternoon and we read late into the night. Each of us took turns reading out loud. We take breaks to discuss what we had read, but mostly we'd end up crying because of the depth of the material. The emotions this brought up in us was overwhelming. The Jewish couple gave their viewpoint based on their religion. We needed to see through their eyes on how their ancestors would view this particular point of history. By 2 a.m., I suggested that we stop reading and try to get some sleep. What a joke! We all went to our bedrooms, but who could sleep? We had just read material that could change the course of religious history. What would happen if this material were released and if people were allowed to believe it? We were too stun-gunned to sleep. 
All of us lay looking at the ceiling for hours. Around 4 a.m., a bright blue light flooded all of our rooms as though we needed anything else to deal with. We were frozen in time for about two hours. In truth, we probably experienced some missing time. At about 6 a.m., when I could move my body, I decided we all needed some breakfast. I went into overdrive and cooked bacon and sausage and eggs and pancakes and biscuits and potatoes and corn on the cob and plenty of coffee. This was the outlet that I needed at the moment to cook my full head off. Around 7.30 a.m. we gathered again to eat this feast prepared from the twilight zone and start discussing what we had read the day and the night before. Just as we were finishing breakfast, there was a knock on the door. There was a woman with a man in the wheelchair. It was Leo, the man that had given George the Wadi Scrolls. He said that he had been awakened in the middle of the night and was told by a voice to get up, get dressed, and drive to Giant Rock to see George immediately because something of importance was happening. He said the voice was so persuasive that he actually was without pain when he went to dress and was free of it as he spoke. I remembered Harvey Brevere kneeling down to speak to Leo and after a few moments noticed that they both were in tears discussing the Wadi Scrolls. It was a very touching moment and one that I am not going to forget for a very long time. We all sat around the round table and started reading the scrolls out loud again except Leo who only listened as the stroke had taken his speech. We had done about an hour of reading when there was a knock on the door, and I got up and answered, and there, standing tall, was a young Australian man speaking with an Aussie accent. Hi, my name is Donovan Joyce, and I have written a book called The Jesus Scrolls. I know this must seem odd, but I was told by my guides to get on an airplane and fly from Australia to L.A., then rent a car and drive to the desert, past Palm Springs, to a place called Giant Rock. And once I got here, I'd know what to do. I glanced down by the door, and on a table was a copy of his book, The Jesus Scrolls, by Donovan Joyce. Someone had sent it to Doris just a few days earlier, and she hadn't had time to even pick it up, much less read it. With not a skip of a beat, I immediately invited him in, and introduced him to the group, and of course we had another round of tears. It was starting to be apparent that the force was at work, and that two individuals had been instructed by voice to come to where we were sitting, sitting in a double-wide house trailer, reading from A, manuscript given by Leo, who now had joined us, and B, another author with some various similar information, being driven by voice to come to the desert by way of Australia? What? Does this sound like the Twilight Zone? Yes, because it was. It's a perfect demonstration of when information flows from the crack between the worlds. We finished reading the final chapter around 2 p.m. It was at that point that George closed the manuscript looked deep within our eyes and said the following Lavendar Harvey Bevere he named the Jewish couple I called you here because I trust you not only 
do I trust you, but also I trust your soul and your records. And I want you to tell me the truth about what I should do with this manuscript. Don't hold anything back. Just tell me how it is. And he turned to me and he said, well, Miss Bowenera, let me hear it from you first. Well, at first I was shocked that he called on me, but then I settled into the fact, and without hesitation I just blurted out, George, if you try to publish this now, they'll just kill you. The Catholic Church alone will have hit men ready to take you out. And anyone that threatens their hold on power, well, in influence of the church, well, this isn't just the Catholic Church, not to mention the Baptist and Methodist and Church of Christ, and just think about all the other religions, what they're going to do. All of Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus died for their sins. And there's great guilt over this, and it's used by every religion in order to control the people. The release of this manuscript would jeopardize too many people and too much power. My vote is to put it away in a vault under strict instructions not to be released until the world can handle through consciousness such a statement of fact. I spoke with a clarity that even surprised me, although when I think about it now some years later it was and is very clear why this manuscript or even other manuscripts like it would either be destroyed or kept under lock and key and away from the masses. Now, can you imagine how I must have felt being raised a Baptist reading this manuscript? This went against everything that I ever had been taught about the Bible or religion. Although I was studying astrology and was practicing the art of being a mystic, I still had certain beliefs that would want to stay in place. The reading of this manuscript changed all of that, and I have never been the same since I read the material. George went around the table and heard from everyone what they also thought, and it was decided by the group that this material would be put in a vault. Later, it was established that when George and Doris died that the material would go to me, and that would be responsible for its safekeeping during my lifetime. This decision would change the course of my life because the magnitude of the responsibility would require that I probably wouldn't marry and have earth children because I could not put them in such a position. Their lives would never be safe. Every relationship that I would have would go through such a scrutiny. This is what I have learned through these years of silence. When one takes a cosmic oath of this magnitude, then a safeguard system is set up through a system called the Keeper of the Keys. Several keys are to be given, but only one is designed to be the one to release the information at the appointed time. That time would be determined by those aboard the Star of Bethlehem and by 33 species of galactic intent. Computer readouts would determine this, and those readouts would take place through implants of the people and the planet. It was a gigantic screening procedure through certain readout days. Mostly these days would be called Pleiadian lineup, which would match November 17, 1819, or May 17, 1819, of any given year. However, because of escalation of technology and war on the planet, there has been additional days of monitoring, and these may start as soon as November 15th or May 15th, 
and last as long as several days after the 19th day. On the Pleiades, this is called the celebration of planet Earth because we are their children and they want to know how we're evolving. Think of it as their Super Bowl with everyone around a TV set watching while partaking of their favorite beverage. This has been a tradition for thousands of years, especially since the destruction of Atlantis. The seeding, the watering, the fertilizing, and harvesting of a planet and its people have been ongoing from planet to planet through these evolutionary measures for eons of time. So sometime in late afternoon, George asked me if I would take a walk with him. He said that there were some things that he needed to discuss with me in private. I agreed and put on my walking shoes and hat, and we began to climb over the sand dunes on our way to Giant Rock. In about ten minutes, when we were out of view of the house, George started speaking to me in a very strange voice. I had never heard this voice before but it was one that I knew spoke with great authority, so I listened very intently. He told me that he and other beings and ETs and spirit wall beings had been watching me for years and had been part of a team to prepare me for some extensive work that would be forthcoming in the next 25 years. He said that I had been part of an ET experiment from the moment of my birth and that I was coated in my blood cells. He knew that I was born with a double pineal, and that I had been part of a hybrid experiment, and that I'd be exposed to other world realities so that I could journal them. He said I was coded in my blood, and that these codes would be released upon certain timings, and that I'd be monitored day and night for the rest of my life on planet Earth. He explained to me about ET technology and implants, but more than that, he explained about time travel and what that would mean in the future when people understood the reality of going forward and backwards in time. Another topic was walk-ins and how that particular experiment was allowed with humans and the beings that be in charge of such soul interchange. Remember, this was in 1977. No one had even mentioned walk-ins at that point, not even Ruth Montgomery or anyone. This was brand new information, and it was really hard for me to hear. When he would see that I had, was having difficulty absorbing this information, he would take his hands and put them over my eyes as though he were coating me with his hands. Then he would look at me in the eyes and stare for long periods to see whether it took or not. This went on for some time with each subject matter that he would tell me about. When he saw that I couldn't handle any more information, then we'd just walk in silence until I would speak. I asked a lot of questions and received more than enough answers. This went on for about three hours. When it came time for closure, he instructed me to take his hands, look into his eyes, and with a jolt that I will never forget, charge me up with so much light that I thought I was going to explode. He told me to go back to the house and wait for him and that he needed to be alone. He turned and walked toward Giant Rock and I practically floated back to the house. When I returned, everyone was still talking about the manuscript, but 
I was totally focused on the information that had just been given to me. I could tell that I had to sit alone with this, so I excused myself and went to the bedroom to rest. Several hours passed, and Doris came in and asked, Where was George? I told her that he said that he needed to be alone. She informed me that it was now 10 p.m. and that I had been back since dusk. I must have looked bewildered as though time had escaped me somehow. Everyone seemed to start being anxious about George, and a search party was convened to go out and find him. They looked for two hours, but no George. Finally, when everyone was exhausted from looking, a very peaceful George just walked up to the house and came in the door. A curious thing happened after that. He turned and winked at me and did the following. He went around and touched everyone and talked with them, and in seconds their entire perception of his absence was erased. I was the only one who was allowed to see this. This was part of my training, and I knew it. Another thing finally came over me. The George that left with me was not the George that came back. In other words, the procedures of walk-ins and how they happen, and now he was one. It was the final demonstration. This was a secret that I would have to keep for some time. In about a month, I got a call from Doris telling me to come at once, that George had just died of a heart attack in a motel. I was in Santa Monica at the time, so it was about three hours until I could get there. Doris told me that when his spirit left his body that the light bulb exploded and the table was split in half with a bright blue light. This did not surprise me. What did surprise me was when she confided in me that she felt like that she had been living, well, not with the same person ever since he came back from his walk that day, that someone else was there. She too had experienced another being in his body, and she told me that this being that left was only sent for a short period of time. She wanted me to record this as she felt that I would know what to do with this material later. I took care of all the funeral arrangements for Doris as she was in such a state that she could not think for herself with clarity. I don't remember much about this as I was still processing the fact that George had left that day that we had taken the walk and, and not the person that we were memorializing now in his service. It has now been 23 years since that eventful walk with George Van Tassel. I can truly say that if I had to mark a place in my life where I took a 180-degree turn, it would be that walk in the sand dunes after reading the Wadi Scrolls. On July 1, 1991, Doris Van Tassel died. I received a phone call telling me that Doris had sold the pages of the manuscript for $10,000 a page. She had distributed them around the world to different people and had made it almost impossible to retrieve. This is the information I was told in 1991. I was devastated to hear this, as every decision I made was readying myself for the responsibility of this manuscript. I felt betrayed. I felt alone. My life went pretty much on hold after that, and not until the crack in the boulder at Giant Rock did I feel the need to write this down on paper. But something about the way that George told me that the rock would crack one day 
seemed to be the code or signal for me to finally release some of this information. Last year, in 1999, I went to visit someone who had been healed at Giant Rock by the ETs. I hadn't seen or heard from her in over 20 years. She had recently published a book about the Van Tassel's work and had reprinted a lot of George's former writings. One night, just before we were to retire, she brought a manuscript into my room. There sat a copy of the Wadi Scrolls. I was so stunned that I couldn't open them. They stayed unopened by me the entire stay. I had kept my part of the bargain and been betrayed. Now they were back, and I just wasn't. I knew that if I picked up the manuscript that I could never put it down, so I just never did. Everyone was dead now. Harvey, Doris, Jewish couple, Leo. All except me. No, thank you. I got the message, and it is still the same message that I gave George when he asked me what he should do with the manuscript. The world is still not ready, nor would it be ready for some time to come. Now here is the rest of the story that emerged in 2005. On my way to San Diego to catch a cruise ship for the Spiritual Cinema Circle, I stopped by to see this woman again as I was now reconsidering looking at the scrolls again. Maybe I'd been too hasty with my decision. Perhaps now I could maintain a more balanced degree of sanity concerning what I had already experienced through the years concerning the Wadi Scrolls. I was aware now that other scrolls are coming forth, and I noticed that no one was ever killed for it, so maybe I was safe after all. The Da Vinci Code and other books had paved the road for this kind of spiritual revaluation, and I knew that I had some galactic codes that would take spiritual seekers on a galactic adventure that would shed some light on their already curious minds about the truth concerning Christianity. I wasn't sure how far I wanted to take this information, but at least I was willing to pick up the scrolls again and make this determination. Get yourself ready to fall off your tricycle for this next revelation. When I mentioned to my friend that I was ready to read the Wadi Scrolls, she looked puzzled and said, What Wadi Scrolls? I refreshed her memory of my visit some years back, and she did remember that I had been at her house, but she had no memory of any Wadi Scrolls being by my bedside. In fact, she remembered nothing about the Wadi Scrolls and asked me to tell her about them. <laughs> I was so stun gone that I couldn't speak, and since we hadn't had dinner yet, I encouraged us to go to a restaurant and continue our conversation there. I noticed that through dinner she was showing signs of dementia and that her memory was truly escaping her. But there was something about the way that she had been erased totally about the Wadi Scrolls that had me in a state of bewilderment. Had I missed the opportunity by simply refusing to pick up the scrolls again? Was I so terribly hurt and upset by past actions concerning the scrolls that I was paralyzed with regret to the point of complete denial? 
What had I done to myself and my commitment concerning the scrolls? I had missed the window, and now no one but me even had the memory of the history of how George had acquired the scrolls, Doris had sold them, I had turned my back on picking them up again, and now they were lost to me. Now, as I'm getting ready to announce Part 1 of Crack Between the Worlds for the exclusive report on Starseed Radio Academy, I am confident that many Starseed, Walk-Ins, Lightworkers, Indigos, and Crystal Beings will be further activated as this story is broadcast and goes viral through the Internet. I trust that those listening to this story will honor the fact that these are my galactic experiences and will pass this on to others that may honor the source as well as the information. With that, I now close. Until next time, we meet in Galactic Sacred Space for Part 2 of Crack Between the Worlds Information as secrets from the vault are being released in timing with certain coded and planetary activations on the planet. The time of this recording is September 18th. 2010. Read by Lavendar. Lavendar, on behalf of all the star seeds on the planet, we thank you for the unwavering dedication you have had to our empowerment. And we will be back two weeks from tonight. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 